1 Kings 15, reading from verses 1 to 24. After that, we'll get to 1 Kings 16. I will guide you at that time. So 1 Kings 15, um, verse 1, hear the word of the Lord. Now in the 18th year of King Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, Abijam began to reign over Judah. He reigned for three years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Maacah, the daughter of Ibishalom. As he walked in all the sins that his, father's, his father did before him, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as the heart of David his father. Nevertheless, for David's sake, the Lord his God gave him a lamp in Jerusalem, setting up his son after him and establishing Jerusalem. Because David did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, and did not turn aside from anything that he commanded him all the days of his life, except in the matter of Uriah the Hittite. Now there was war between Rehoboam and Jeroboam all the days of his life. The rest of the acts of Ibijam and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Judah? And there was war between Ibijam and Jeroboam. And Ibijam slept with his fathers, and they buried him in the city of David, and Asa his son reigned in his place. In the twentieth year of Jeroboam, king of Israel, Asa began to reign over Judah, and he reigned forty-one years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Maacah, the daughter of Abishalom, and Asa did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, as David his father had done. He put away the male cult prostitutes out of the land and removed all the idols that his fathers had made. He also removed Maacah, his mother, from being queen mother because she had made an abominable image for Asherah. And Asa cut, her down, cut down her image and burned it at the brook Kidron. But the high places were not taken away. Nevertheless, the heart of Asa was wholly true to the Lord all his days, and he brought into the house of the Lord the sacred gifts of his father and his own sacred gifts, silver and gold and vessels. And there was war between Asa and Baasha, king of Israel, all their days. Baasha, king of Israel, went up against Judah and built Ramah, that he might permit no one to go out or come in to Asa, king of Judah. Then Asa took all the silver and the gold that were left in the treasures of the house of the Lord, and the treasures of the king's house, and gave them into the hands of his servant. And King Asa sent them to Ben-Hadad, the son of Tibrimon, the son of Hazion, king of Syria, who lived in Damascus, saying, Let there be a covenant between me and you, as there was between my father and your father. Behold, I am sending you a present of silver and gold. Go, break your covenant with Baasha, king of Israel, that he may withdraw from me. And Ben-Hadad listened to King Asa and sent the commanders of his armies against the cities of Israel and conquered Aijan, then Abel, Beth, Mekah, and all Chinneroth, with all the land of Naphtali. And when Baasha heard it, he stopped building Ramah and he lived in Terza. Then King Asa made a proclamation to all Judah. None was exempt, and they carried away the stones of Ramah and its timber with which Baasha had been building, and with them King Asa built Geba of Benjamin and Mizpah. 
Now the rest of all the acts of Asa, all his might, and all that he did, and the cities that he built, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Judah? But in his old age, he was diseased in his feet, and Asa slept with his fathers and was buried with his fathers in the city of David his father. And Jehoshaphat his son reigned in his place. And now let's turn to the next passage from 1 Kings 16, towards the end of that chapter. 1 Kings 16, I'll be reading from verses 29 to 34. Verse 29, In the 38th year of Asa king of Judah, Ahab the son of Omri began to reign over Israel. And Ahab the son of Omri reigned over Israel in Samaria 22 years. And Ahab the son of Omri did evil in the sight of the Lord, more than all who were before him. And as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam the son of Nabat, he took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Athbel, king of the Sidonians, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. He erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria. And Ahab made an Asherah. Ahab did no more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. In his day, Hiel of Bethel built Jericho. He laid its foundation at the at the cost of Ibiram, his firstborn, and set up his gates at the cost of his youngest son, Segeb, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke by Joshua, the son of Nun. It's lovely to be, to be gathered here and to come together and think and uh, explore together what God is saying, have a, have a time in his word. And it's a passage which is full of just a monotonous account, I think, but bear with me. I think you'll find a lot of interesting things in here and encouraging things. Lovely to have Shannon and Lee here. So good to have you guys here. So encouraged by what you shared. So good that you're in Fremantle and connecting with people and to hear stories of changed lives. It's a delight. Well, I hope you've got the passage open. Let's jump in and let's think about it. I don't know if you follow rugby. I just had a chat with someone who's doing our sound at the back who, who watched three weeks ago South Africa beat New Zealand in the Rugby World Cup. That's exactly three weeks ago against New Zealand. It's the fourth win for South Africa. Their first one was in 1995. And that was the first year they ever played in the competition and also they hosted that, uh, that World Cup. Now, in those days, Nelson Mandela was president of the country. He was the first black president of South Africa, and he had been in that job for just, just over a year. And you, you, you probably know the terrible history of South Africa. Apartheid had only been renounced just a few years before by the previous government and power was being handed over. Now you have Nelson Mandela, the first democratically elected man. The country's tense. People are wondering what kind of future South Africa has, particularly when it came to the population and tension between black people and white people. And the thing is that rugby, here we are in 1995, rugby 
was a sport very dear to the white population. And many of the black leaders that were now in power did not want to support rugby. But Nelson Mandela was a man committed to unity. And in 1995, at the Rugby World Cup final, he went out of his way to signal to the white people of South Africa that he was for them too. He won their hearts by coming onto the field wearing the jersey of the captain. And you can see a picture from that time. He came on before and at, at the end when they had won. And it was in that moment, it was a euphoric moment, so many of us looking at that felt, under this man, we have a good future. Here is the leader we have needed. Many of us felt that. Now, I want to play a video clip of, of that moment. I don't know if, if, if it will get you the same way as it got us, because many of you are not South Africans. But just try and capture the euphoria of that moment. If we could have that video clip. Thank you. The experience that it's, it's, it's something that you can't describe it. I was either early out or, or late back into the changing room. And so I was one of the probably probably the only All Black that was out there standing looking around the field as the as the big jumbo went over the South African Airways with Go Boca written on the on the bottom of it. So, you know, it was an electric atmosphere. It was very, very exciting to be part of. Not in my wildest dreams did I think that Nelson Mandela would pitch up at the final wearing the Springbok on his heart. And uh, when he walked into our changing room to say good luck to us, and he, and he turned around and, and my number was on his back. It was, it was just an amazing feeling. It is because I understood the impact of sport. It was a very important sport. And precisely because sports speaks a language which is understood by everybody throughout the world, I supported it. The pressure was all on us because um, they had Nelson Mandela on their side. They had their country had finally united. It felt like that we were that we were 15 players playing against you know a couple of million people at that time, and uh, that was a that was a huge difference. You heard the crowd shouting when he was on the field. Nelson, Nelson, Nelson! It still makes me very, very emotional. I don't want to cast Nelson Mandela as a saint because no man is perfect. And he did have his flaws, but he was, in those times, an outstanding leader in many ways. If you want to know a bit more about that story, go back a few years onto our website. We had an evening here with a man that used to be the leader of his security detail and someone I know from the old days. And he talks about how he came to really love this man. Now, in 2009, a movie was released called Invictus. I don't know if you've seen it. It starred American actors Matt Damon and uh, Morgan Freeman. Morgan Freeman played Nelson Mandela. It was, it was directed by Clint Eastwood. And it tells the story of that 1995 World Cup, but actually behind it, as you can see in the image there, it's, it's about Mandela's efforts 
to lead the country to success, to lead the country to reconciliation. Kerry and I saw that movie at the cinema when it was released, and we were still in South Africa. We were actually a few weeks from leaving Cape Town to come here, to live in Perth. And when we saw the movie, we cried. Why did we cry? Because that was 14 years down the track from that moment of euphoria, that time when there was so much hope. 14 years later, the country we were leaving was in decline. It was unhealthy. Why? Because the leaders that followed were not like Nelson Mandela. I do believe he really cared about the nation, even with his flaws. He's just a man. But in the years that followed, South Africa had leaders throughout the system that only cared about power and wealth. Now, that's a bit of a long introduction, but it sets the scene for what is before us in the passage this morning. It's about how leaders affect a nation for good or ill. And we're going to find that even when you have a good leader, because they are not perfect, because they are sinful people, the future is not going to be good. You see, God had promised a glorious future for Israel. They would be a people, said God, that would see blessing flow from them as they grew into this successful nation, this blessed nation. This blessing would flow into all the world. And that promise was looking like it was coming true under King David and then under his son, King Solomon. Solomon was successful. He had great influence over the world. And the nations of the world came to look and see, and many of them came to bow to the true God of the world. But then we find that as Solomon got old, and we've already covered this, we find him to be a rebellious man, an arrogant man, living against God. And then we find that after Solomon, this nation Israel splits into two kingdoms. The one in the north with the majority of the tribes carrying on with the name Israel. The one in the south called Judah. And here's this great future just crumbling when the nation splits. And all because of wicked men. People that are all about power. People that are all about politics. And now we find as we go further this morning, it just gets worse. And so a natural question at this point in the story is, where is the promise? Why are things so bad? Will God really deliver this glorious kingdom that he's promised? And it's a question that is probably even bigger for us now, for us as Christians, for us as people who read the New Testament. Because in the New Testament, we are told that Jesus, who is king, will conquer the evil forces that govern our world, whether they are are governments in parliaments or authorities in in business and captains of industry or whatever it is, Jesus is going to conquer those forces that oppose him. And he's going to reign. And there's going to be a wonderful kingdom forever. You know, in Revelation chapter 17 and verse 14, we read this. It says, they will make war on the Lamb. Who is they? Well, it's the evil systems of the world, the authorities, the, the powers. That They will make war on the Lamb. The Lamb is Jesus. And the Lamb will conquer them. Why? 
For he is Lord of lords and king of kings. He rules over all the other rulers and authorities. He is over them. And so he's Lord of lords and king of kings. And those with him are called and chosen and faithful. So if you're a believer, you're with him. He's your king. And this future is wonderful. He, he rules over all of that. He will conquer all of that. What a glorious promise. But it seems like it won't happen. The world around us seems to be sinking into more and more chaos. You know, Western countries are rebelling against God more and more. We, we find that our leaders across the Western world consistently breaking down the foundations of society. You know that. They have these policies, policies from decades ago in Australia, no-fault divorce. You don't like the person anymore, you can just say, I don't like them, and you'll be granted a divorce. All the way to stuff now like redefinition of marriage, questions around human identity. But we are not well in the West. And so we ask, where is the promise? Do we have reason to believe that God will deliver? Is there really a future? Well, let's see what we can learn from the passage. These chapters take us through this decline of both Israel and Judah. It's a 60-year period that we're looking at, 61 to be exact. And the stories are monotonous because most of them, in assessing these kings, say something like this. Here's one example, verse 3 of chapter 15. This is as Abijam becomes king in Judah after Rehoboam. Rehoboam, responsible for the split. So Abijam comes in and we read this. And he walked in all the sins that his father did before him, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God as the heart of David his father. Father meaning the line of father's grandfather, great-grandfather and all that. So that's an example. Now, now go to uh, verse 26 when it talks about Nadab. He becomes king in Israel after Jeroboam. And it says, assessing him, he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and walked in the way of his father and any sin which he made Israel to sin. The leader is messing it all up. Israel sins because of the leader. That's the assessment. It's quite monotonous over and over again. These are tragic chapters. They're horrible. When it comes to Israel, every single one of the kings, six of them in the 60-year period, is terrible. In this period in Judah, down in the south, there were two kings. Uh, the first one, Abijam, terrible. The, the second one, Asa, was different. He's the only one to get a good report card. And so in verse 11 of chapter 15, it says this, And Asa did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, as David his father had done. But the thing is, read the whole story of Asa, and you find that he's not perfect. For instance, in verse 14, we have this. But the high places were not taken away. These places of wrong worship that God had said that they should not be doing, he didn't deal with it. Then it says, nevertheless, the heart, the heart of Asa was wholly true to the Lord all his days. But we're finding out that as much as he, he had a heart for the Lord, he was a flawed man. He did not do everything well. Next we read that, he went to a foreign nation when he had trouble with the northern kingdom, with Israel. 
And, and he paid them treasures from the house of the Lord. And he, he paid them to, to align with him to defeat Israel. Problem with that? He didn't look to the Lord. He relied on political maneuvering this man. And we could judge him, but don't we do that? Don't we, people of faith, we do love God, but there are many times we have to confess our sin. We're not perfect. We display weak faith. In verse 23, it says that in his old age, he was diseased in his feet. Do you want to know what that was? His diseased feet. Any ideas what was wrong with his feet? It's something that I complained about just a couple of years ago. I was really struggling with it. Uh, commentators think he had gout. I, I don't have problems with gout anymore because I've changed my diet. But when it creeps in, there's a wonderful pill called colchicine. You just pop that and it's an ancient medicine. Been around for thousands of years and works. I don't know why he didn't have it in his time. <laughs> but he had gout. And why is this mentioned that the man had these diseased feet? I mean, what's wrong with... I mean, is there something wrong with me? Am I a sinner? Because I've got... This, when I get gout? No. I think the answer lies for us in another part of the Bible. In 2 Chronicles 16 and verse 12, there's an, there's an indication as to what was wrong here. Uh, I think it comes up on the screen. In the 39th year of his reign, Asa was diseased in his feet, and his disease became severe. Yet even in his disease, he did not seek the Lord, but sought help from physicians. And the commentators think he went to Egypt to go and uh, get help there. He's not turning to the Lord. There's a weakness in the man. Not, he's not a perfect man. His heart is true to the Lord. He's not perfect in faith. And I think when you read the Bible and you look at all the men who love the Lord, other than Jesus, their, their hearts love the Lord, but they had many moments of weak faith. The point is that you just it's, humans can't do it. Now, the story of Israel in the north, well, that's nothing good. All the kings that we are shown in the 60-year period are evil in their hearts. They went out of their way to oppose God. Some left the stage because they were assassinated by the next king. It's a dreadful thing when, when, when uh, leaders are shot or, or stabbed or murdered or whatever, assassinated. So that happened to Nadab, that happened to Elah. Zimri, who was one of those who assassinated, he assassinated Elah. He is only king in Israel for seven days. Because he really overstepped. He, he was foolish. He overstepped in doing that. The army was not happy about it. And Omri, head of the army, came to deal with that. Zimri realized he's in big trouble. So instead of being taken out by Omri, he committed suicide. In a dramatic way, he burned his whole house over himself, the text says. So what we're reading when we see all this is just it's wild and it's, it's chaotic. That's not how a nation should be. There's no future for a nation like this good leadership is critical for a nation to be healthy to be strong as i was thinking about the these six kings over over 60 years and they're coming and going it reminded me a little bit about australia i've lived here for 14 years and in that time i've known seven prime ministers in 14 years uh, when I came here, it was Kevin Rudd, and then Julia Gillard led a spill, and then it came Gillard, then Rudd managed to come back and kick her, so then it was Rudd again, and then lost the election soon after that, then it's Tony Abbott, but then there was Malcolm Turnbull, who managed to push him out, and then the party turned against him, and they put Morrison in, and then we had elections, and now we've got 
Albanese. I mean, there's a lot of people leading in that short time. And so it's not settled. It's not like what we're reading in, in the passage, but it's just not settled. It's not good. A country needs stable, settled leadership. Well, the story of Israel in these chapters is so dark. And not only is it dark, it gets darker as it downward spirals. It gets worse and worse. I haven't looked at every instance of darkness. I just want to show you some things. Omri, the, 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 the commander of the army who, who came to deal with Zimri, but Zimri got to kill himself first, he's the fifth king, Omri. And this is, this is him in chapter 16, verses 25 to 26. Here's the assessment. Omri did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did more evil, you get more evil, than all who were before him. For he walked in all the way of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. The one that was the first king of the northern kingdom is Jeroboam. Omri walked in his ways, but he was worse. Uh, So he walked in all the way of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and in the sins that he made Israel to sin, provoking the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger by their idols. It's, It's just worse and worse. And it gets to a great low when Ahab comes on the scene, and he's the sixth king up there in the northern kingdom. His wife Jezebel is well known in in the Bible because she influences great evil. It is under Ahab that the nation ends up worshipping Baal, or Baal, however you pronounce it. And so what, what we find now is that he brings this false god right into Samaria, That's the capital of Israel, the northern kingdom. Right there in the center of things. Pick it up in in chapter 16, verse 31. And it's as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, he took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbal, king of the Sidonians, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. Verse 32. He erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria, the seats of government. And Ahab made an Asherah. So that's a worship point with an Asherah pole. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. It's very serious. It's very dark. It's a downward spiral. Now, I don't know what you think about the world in which you live, but I do not think that any leader has ever been able to take any country to a really, really good place. Sometimes you get a bit of an Asa, a bit of a Mandela, and things are are looking good. They cannot take a country to heights. Now, I think of Australia. I was thinking about Dan Andrews in Victoria at the end of last year as I thought about Asa bringing into the capital Baal worship. Here is what Dan Andrews said at the end of last year as he put funding to Islam. These are his own words released by his office. And I picked it up from an Anglican pastor who wrote an article. The pastor's name is Mark Dury. He wrote an article talking about how Dan Andrews uplifts Islam but shuns Christianity. Dan Andrews' words. We think it is important as part of an education process that everyone across our state knows about the works of the prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him. By the way, that's what Muslims say whenever they say the prophet's name. They say, peace be upon him, to honor him. Don't Andrews, peace be upon him. 
It is very important that his teachings, his life, his journey is understood by so many people. That's why we will provide a half million grant to the Islamic Museum in partnership with the Board of Imams and also the Islamic Council of Victoria to develop a program to educate, to share those teachings, to share that wisdom. This is part of a comprehensive plan to do what matters. Dan Andrews, Premier of Victoria, who knocks Christianity. It's, it's astonishing that he does this when Islam says very, very strong things against homosexuality. Christianity says that homosexuality is a sin, but it, it, it talks to people with love and grace. It says we're all sinful in the ways that we behave. Dan Andrews bringing Islam to a height. These things are defiance against God, and it's astonishing stuff, particularly in Israel and in Judah, where they should know. They should know. Verse 33 of chapter 16 says, Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. Now, we haven't got time to consider how. There's so much. I'll give you an example, a short one quickly. In his days, it says that he let, this is Ahab, he let Jericho be rebuilt. And that was in defiance of what God had expressly said in Joshua's time when Joshua had destroyed it. It wasn't to be rebuilt. So back to our question. Where is the promise? Will God deliver? It really looks like evil is able to thwart God. In our increasingly dark days, it looks like we believers are fools. We are told that we're on the wrong side of history. And so is the future that we look to real, that God has promised? Is it real? Will Jesus reign in that perfect, glorious kingdom one day? Well, part of the answer to that question is that we find in the passage that God is in complete control of everything that's going on. It's none of the stuff that's happening is happening with God wringing his hands going, panic, panic, panic. It's all collapsing. It's all, ha- all breaking down around me. That's not what's happening because all over these passages, we read things like this, what I'm about to read. This is where Nadab was king in Israel after Jeroboam, his father. But Baasha, the next man, assassinated Nadab. And this is what we read. So Baasha killed him in the third year of Asa, king of Judah, and reigned in his place. And as soon as he was king, this is dreadful, and as soon as he was king, Baasha killed all the house of Jeroboam, all the, all the relatives. He left to the house of Jeroboam not one that breathed until he had destroyed it. And I haven't finished reading what comes next. According to the word of the Lord that he spoke by his servant, Ahijah the Shilonite, the prophet. God is, God is not responsible for this ghastly deed. That is not the case. But God has decreed that this happen. Later on, God speaks to Baasha through the prophet Jehu. And he speaks against Baasha. What for? What does God speak against him for? 
Well, uh, these words are said later on. Uh, Both because of all the evil he did in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger with the work of his hands, in being like the house of Jeroboam, God speaks to him against him for that, and then the second part, and also because he destroyed it. But this, this, is, this destruction God had decreed would come upon Nadab and the line of Jeroboam. God had said that would happen through the prophet. God decreed it so. But here he speaks against Baasha, saying, you're in trouble because you did this. So do, do you see? He speaks against the man for what he did. God had said that he would bring trouble upon these kings for their evil. And we see this all over the Bible. God decreeing the actions of evil people to punish other evil people. But in it all, God is not evil. The evil isn't God's. It's the people's. They're the ones who are evil. And as I said before, two weeks ago, these things are hard for us to get in our head because we are limited beings. We are not like God. We are not outside of the bounds of time and space. God is. We can't figure it all out with our limited minds, how it works, that God is completely in control, but that humans are completely responsible for their actions. But the Bible says this all the way through. And last time I mentioned how the cross is the great example of that. The evil of the cross is the responsibility of human beings. The fact that the cross happened, God decreed for our good. We can't tie it all together. But what I want us to get from this is this, that it answers the question about God's promise. God is not wringing his hands as as if great evil is flowing all over the place and he's going, oh no, what are we going to do? Because you see, we've seen in the passage that everything is under control. We see that the things he speaks have come to be. And so his word does have power. He decreed what these evil kings would do, and they did it. And he has also decreed how everything is going to end. And so we can be confident. And so two thoughts as we close. The first thought is, I want you to see from this passage that people are very bad. Human beings are very, very bad. At the Coldplay concert last night, Kerry and I were at the Coldplay concert, and it was lovely. It was wonderful. Chris Martin and his team are very, very good musicians. I don't agree with everything they say, and here's an example of something. Last night, Chris Martin said that Everyone there, he spoke of us as 60,000 people, and he said, we're all, we're all good people. He's effectively saying the world is mostly good people. And, and that he said, we must get our love energy out into the world. And he got everyone, except me and Kerry, I don't know others, we just went still like this, <laughs> to form hearts with our fingers and hold it out so it flows into the world, because the world just needs love, and we're all so good. No, Chris Martin, I don't agree with you. you that people are not good. I know people. I've been in ministry for nearly 30 years and I've seen how people are hurt and they're victims of abuse and they are uh, themselves perpetrators. And I see my own family that I've grown up in. I know my own heart. 
I've seen the darkness. Carrie and I we sat down, letting the crowds go away, and we looked around us, and these lovely people, these good people that Chris Martin was praising, they left litter everywhere. <laughs> like, why don't they take it away? They're selfish. And so the world I live in is evil, and it's always been evil. And these stories in the passage are a snapshot of what we are. These stories are like the pathologist taking the human being and cutting the heart open on the dissection table, and it's not good. Even if a person is like Asa, and, and they do many good things, they don't honor God. They do not, they weaken their faith. There's a, there's a, there's a human element there that is so bad. That's the first thing I want you to see. The second thing is this, and that is what I've already touched on. What God says always happens. We have seen that God's word is powerful in the passage. When he says a thing happens, it happens. And he has said that a time is coming when everything will be put right. He has told us our glorious King Jesus will return. He will. He is the only king, the only human that's ever been perfect, the only one we can look to for any hope at all. And what a wonderful hope that is. But why, Jesus? Why have you not come yet? Why not yet? Where are you? Well, I want to pick that answer up from 2 Peter 3, 8 to 10, and I don't have it on the screen. I want you to pick it up in your own Bible. So go to 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 to 10. And this is where Peter is writing and saying, many people are scoffing and they're going, oh, where is this coming that God has promised? Every, this coming of Jesus, this new future, everything in the world just goes on as it always has before, from the beginning of creation. That's what we read a little bit earlier on. And so nothing is, there's always going to be just bad people, bad leaders, just nothing is going to change. That's the, that's the general sort of tenor of what's come before. And then we have these words, 2 Peter 3, 8 to 10. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. So God doesn't work in our time frame. We go, oh, time, tick, tock. Talk, for God is not in time. And so the Lord is not slow, verse 9, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. All these human hearts dissected on the table in that passage, so revolting, the human condition, that's us. God is patient with us. He wants us to repent. Because when the day comes, it's not going to be good for those who don't repent. Verse 10, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief. It'll come all of a sudden. You don't expect the thief. All of a sudden. And then the heavens will pass away with a roar. And the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. And the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. I don't know. What you, do you ever think about your sin and the things that you only know in secret? When I think about the, the, the bad side of my heart, and then I think of that day, this says it will be exposed. You will all see the, the mucky parts of me. You will all see it. But Jesus takes it away. Because you will also see me dressed in the righteousness of Christ. And so I want to end with this. No human leader, none, will ever sort out this world. 
South Africa was never going to be what we thought, this rainbow nation. People were talking in those days of the rainbow nation, everyone together, all different kinds of, of people, different tribes and tongues and so on. There was another phrase around those days, the new South Africa. Oh, there's no new South Africa. It was bad before, it's bad now. Even when there was a bit of an Asa moment with Mandela doing some great things. The beginning, uh, verse 4 of chapter 3 to Peter. Where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. Well, we have hope because, you see, Jesus will return. He will return because everything God has said about anything else has all happened. He will return. Will you be ready on that day? When, when your sin is exposed, will you stand there naked with nothing to put on, in trouble before God, thoroughly embarrassed before everybody else? Will that be you? Or will you having your, your sin exposed, but actually having the righteousness of Christ clothe you, his purity, and because of Jesus, stand forgiven before God and then part of that wonderful, perfect new world, a real new world where everything is good forever, which is going to be you. Jesus will return. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for being so frank with us in your word about the condition of humans. And for even in this difficult section with so much darkness, we come out knowing that what you say happens is true. We can trust you. And so we ask that for those of us who are believers, who are trusting in Jesus, who are clothed in his righteousness, that we would have great confidence that no matter what's going on in our world, that we would not fear that we would not be shaken because there will be a new world and we will be part of it because of Jesus. And for those who have not come to that place of putting their trust in Jesus, of becoming a Christian, that you would move hearts heavenly. Father, please open hearts so that those people will not stand on that day when all the works done are exposed. Exposed with no covering. May there be no one in this room like that. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.